Hello, this is Dr. Pengxian Qian, the Editor-in-Chief of Harvardum. The July issue of the journal is a focus issue on Ben and Marshall featuring three original articles, one contemporary review and a hands-on article, and a historical perspective on that anatomical structure. The first paper is titled Determinants of Outcome Impact of Ben and Marshall Ethanol Infusion When Added to Castor Ablation of Persistent Atrial Fibrillation. The VENUS trial is a trial that randomized 343 patients with persistent atrial fibrillation to castor ablation combined with vein or martial or VOM, ethanol or castor ablation alone. The primary outcome is frequent, uh, freedom from AF or AT after a single procedure. In patients with uh, perimitral block, the primary outcome was reached 54.3%, after VOM plus castor ablation group and 37% after castor ablation alone. The outcomes are much better in high volume than in low volume centers. These findings indicate that adding VOM ethanol infusion to castor ablation has a greater impact on outcomes when associated with perimitral block and performed and in high volume centers. Perimitral block should be part of the VOM procedure. A second paper is titled Significance of Manifest Localized Staining During Ethanol Infusion into the Vein of Marshall. The authors studied 204 patients and analyzed the patterns of staining after VOM ethanol infusion. Staining of atrial myocardium that spread uniformly along the VOM vascular tree was considered normal in contrast to predominantly localized staining that spread concentrically from a focal point due to vascular injury. Localized staining was observed in 27% of patients. It was not associated with instance of pericardial effusions in achieving acute mitral isthmus block or with long-term procedural success. The authors conclude that localized staining after VOM ethanol infusion was frequent, but was not associated with clinically relevant impact or disadvantages. A third original article is the combination of coronary sinus osteoatresia slash abnormality and a small persistent left superior vena cava, opportunity for left ventricular lead implantation, and unrecognized source of thromboembolic stroke. The small persistent left superior vena cava is also known as VOM. The authors report 20 patients with coronary sinus osteoanomalies. Among them, 70% had small persistent left SVC identified by castor manipulation and contrast injection, and 30% by levophase coronary sinus aminography. In 80%, LV lead was implanted down small persistent left SVC and in 20%, small persistent left SVC was used to access the coronary sinus from the right atrium. One patient experienced a stroke during implantation. The authors conclude that when coronary sinus osteoanomalies prevent success, uh, access, small persistent left SVC can be used to successfully implant LV leads. These three original articles are followed by a contemporary review titled Vaino Marshall Ethanol Infusion in the Treatment of Atrial Fibrillation from Concept 
to clinical practice by Miguel Valderrabanio et al. A hands-on article titled How to Perform Ethanol Ablation of the Vein Marshal for Treatment of Atrial Fibrillation by Hocini et al. And a historical vignette titled The Ligament Marshal, A Historical Perspective by Benjamin Sherlock. The next two original articles illustrate the value of newer anti-diabetic agents, including glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonist, or GLP-1-RA, and sodium glucose co-transporter 2, SGLT2 inhibitor. The first of the two articles is titled Comparison of the Effect of Glucose-Lowering Agents on the Risk of Atrial Fibrillation and Network Meta-Analysis. He also searched the various databases for studies that report AF, A flutter as clinical endpoints with a follow-up period of at least 12 months. Five eligible studies consisting of 263,000 patients with type 2 diabetes were included. Based on the pooled results, GLP-1-RA significantly reduced AF, A flutter events compared with metformin sulfonylurea, and insulin. In conclusion, compared with other glucose-lowering agents, GLP-1-RA could reduce the risk of atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter in patients with diabetes. The second paper is titled Association with SGLT2 Inhibitors with Arrhythmias and Sudden Cardiac Death in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes or Heart Failure a meta-analysis of 34 randomized controlled trials. The trials have a total of 63,000 patients, except for one study of heart failure, all patients had type 2 diabetes. Follow-up ranged from 24 weeks to 5.7 years. SGLT2 inhibitor therapy was associated with a significant reduction in the risk of instant atrial arrhythmias and the sudden cardiac deaths compared with control. The authors propose that prospective trials are warranted to confirm the antiarrhythmic effects of SGLT2 inhibitors and determine whether this is a class or drug-specific effect. The next article is Arrhythmia-Induced Cardiomyopathy, a potentially reversible cause of refractory cardiogenic shock requiring venoatrial extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. The authors reported 35 patients who required venoatrial extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or VA ECMO, for refractory cardiogenic shock and recent supraventricular arrhythmia. Among them, 77% had atrial fibrillation. A and or electric cardioversion successfully reduced arrhythmia in 12. Among them, 11 had long-term survival without transplantation or long-term assist device. Eight patients underwent ablation procedures were weaned off via ECMO. Seven survived. Of the remaining 15 patients without arrhythmia reduction or ablation, only the six bridged to heart transplantation or LV assist device survived. The authors conclude that arrhythmia-induced cardiomyopathy, mainly AF-related, is an under-recognized cause of refractory cardiogenic shock. VA ECMO support allowed safe arrhythmia reduction or rate control by AV node ablation while awaiting recovery, even among those with severe LV dilation. 
Next up is persistent atrial fibrillation ablation in cardiac laminopathy, electrophysiological findings, and the clinical outcomes. The study included three women and five men. The LA volume was 206 ml. Large low voltage areas were recorded in all eight patients. After ablation, early arrhythmia recurrence was recorded in seven patients or 87%. After mean follow-up of 4.4 years, four patients underwent ICD therapy for life-threatening ventricular arrhythmia, and three patients finally underwent heart transplantation. The authors conclude that patients with persistent AF afflicted by cardiac laminopathy exhibit severe LA impairment because of large low-voltage areas, prolonged conduction velocity, and reduced contractile function. Ablation procedures have a limited effect with a high recurrence rate. The next paper is uh, differentiating atrial tachycardias with centrifugal activation, lessons from high-resolution mapping. The authors aim to establish a method to differentiate true focal from pseudo-focal atrial tachycardia. Of 30 centrifugal activations observed in the septal region, 6 of 30 or 20% were true focal. Remaining 24 over 60 or 80% were pseudo-focal, of which 23 or 95.8% were from the opposite chamber. P-wave and the flutter wave duration less than 200 milliseconds discriminated true focal from pseudo-focal. Multiple breakthrough rule out the possibility of a true focal atrial tachycardia. The authors conclude that centrifugal activation is not necessarily due to a focal AT, but passive activation. The activation MAC with global activation histogram in addition to the 12-lead ECG and local electrograms enables an accurate differentiation. Coming up is a major adverse clinical events associated with the implantation of a leadless intracardiac pacemaker. The authors found an unexpected number of major adverse clinical events, or MACE, in the Food and Drug Administration's manufacturers and the User Facility Device Experience, or MAUDI, database associated with Medtronic microimplantation. Their search identified 363 MACE for micro and 960 MACE for capture fixed leads. The percentage of complications were higher in micro than capture fixed leads in terms of death, tamponades, rescue, thoracotomies, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and hypotension or shock. The authors estimate the instance is low, or less, one, less than 1%, for, uh, for perforations, tears, tamponade, and deaths. An accompanying editorial pointed out many limitations related to the FDA MAUDI database, including the potential submission of incomplete, inaccurate, untimely, unverified, or biased data. Exploration of more robust available safety information is appropriate. The next article is a low-temperature electroculture reduces adverse effects from secondary cardiac implantable electronic device procedures. Insights from the RAPID trial. The authors evaluated 5,600 patients who underwent device revision upgrade replacement. 
Electroculture was used in 5,205 patients, so 92.3%, and low-temperature electroculture was used to, in uh, 1,866 patients, or 35.9%. The results show that uh, compared to standard electroculture, low-temperature electroculture was associated with a 23% reduction in the ins- instance of a procedure or lead-related adverse event through three years of follow-up. Coming up next is left atrial appendage closure in prohibitive anatomy. Insights from Pinnacle FLX. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the safety and efficacy of Watchman FLX in patients with a failed Watchman 2.5 attempt or prohibitive LAA anatomy. The row-in and the primary effective cohorts of the Pinnacle FLX trial comprise the study population. Watchman FLX LAA closure was successfully implanted in all subjects with a prior failed Watchman 2.5 attempt. Patients with prohibited anatomy had smaller LAA dimensions than did controls. Overall, and cardiovascular mortality was lower in the prohibitive anatomy uh, cohort. The authors conclude that Watchman FLX implantation in patients with a prior failed Watchman 2.5 attempt or prohibitive LAA anatomy remained safe and highly effective. The association of uh, reduced overall mortality with smaller LAA implant dimension warrants future study. The following paper is uh, skin sympathetic nerve activity as a biomarker for neurological recovery during therapeutic hypothermia for cardiac arrest. Skin sympathetic nerve activity, or SKNA, recordings were analyzed from 29 patients undergoing targeted temperature management following cardiac arrest. Patients were grouped based on clinical performance category, or CPC, score into groups 1, which is CPC 1 to 2, representing a good neurological outcome, and group 2, CPC 3 to 5, representing a poor neurological outcome. The authors found that neurological recovery was retrospectively associated with SKMA. Patients undergoing targeted temperature management who did not achieve neurological recovery were associated with low SKNA and lacked a significant correlation between SKNA and heart rate. These preliminary results indicate that SKNA may potentially be a useful biomarker to predict neurological status in patients undergoing targeted temperature management. The next paper is a percentage of age-predicted cardiorespiratory fitness and the risk of sudden cardiac death, a prospective cohort study. Cardiorespiratory fitness was assessed during using a gold-standard respiratory gas exchange analyzer in 2,276 men who underwent cardiopulmonary exercise testing. During median follow-up of 28.2 years, 260 sudden cardiac deaths occurred. There was a dose-response relationship between age-predicted cardiorespiratory uh, fitness and sudden cardiac deaths. The authors conclude that percentage of age-predicted cardiorespiratory fitness is continuously, strongly, and independently associated with risk of sudden cardiac deaths and is con- comparable to absolute cardiorespiratory fitness as a risk indicator 
for certain cardiac deaths. Next step is uh, defining idiopathic ventricular fibrillation, a systematic review of diagnostic testing yield in apparently unexplained cardiac arrest. Idiopathic ventricular fibrillation, or IVF, is diagnosed in patients with apparently unexplained cardiac arrest after varying degrees of evaluation. A total of 21 studies were included in this analysis. The pooled comprehensive diagnostic testing yield was 43%. Epinephrine challenge, holter monitoring, and the family screening were associated with low yield, or less than 5%, whereas cardiac magnetic resonance imaging Exercise treadmill test and the sodium channel blocker challenge were associated with a high yield of greater than 5%. Coronary spasm provocation, electrophysiology study, and systematic genetic testing were reported to be abnormal in a high proportion of unexplained cardiac arrest probands of greater than 10%. The authors conclude that they have developed a stepwise algorithm for unexplained cardiac arrest evaluation and the criteria to assess the strengths of IVF diagnosis on the basis of the diagnostic yield of unexplained cardiac arrest testing. Coming up next is effect of preload reducing therapy on right ventricular size and functioning in patients with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. The authors performed a retrospective chart review of prospectively collected registry data and included 20 patients with definite ARVC who had a serial echocardiographic measurements and an implantable cardioverter defibrillator. Patients who received preload-reducing agents, or six of them, were older and had larger RVs with lower fractional area change at baseline. However, treatment with preload-reducing agents was associated with less RV and diastole area enlargement during mean 3.3 years of treatment in multivariate analysis. The authors conclude that preload-reducing agents show promising results in slowing RV enlargement in patients with ARVC and show possible disease-modifying potential. The next paper is uh, fascicular, ventricular, and atrioventricular accessory pathways in patients with uh, Denon disease and pre-excitation, a multicenter experience. Denon disease is a rare X-linked dominant genetic disorder of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They studied uh, 40 patients in a multicenter Denon disease registry. 13 of 40 patients, or 32.5% with Denon disease, were found to have pre-excitation. EPS performed in 9 of 13 patients, or 69%, demonstrated fascicular ventricular pathway only in 2, or 22.2%. Extranodal pathway without exclusion of uh, fascicular ventricular pathway in 2, or 22.2%, and both fascicular ventricular pathway and extranodal pathway in 5 or 55.6%. The authors conclude that in a large multicenter cohort patient with Denon disease, there was a high percentage of vascular ventricular pathway and extranodal pathways diagnosed on EPS in those with pre-excitation. These findings suggest that patients with pre-excitation and Denon disease should undergo EPS to assess the vascular ventricular pathway 
and potentially malignant extranodal accessory pathway. Coming up next is gender-affirming hormone treatment causes changes of a gender phenotype in a 12-lead electrocardiogram. The study population consisted of 29 transgender males and 8 transgender females and 37 age and sex matched cisgender females and males. Male pattern was defined as J-point elevation of greater than 0.1 millivolt and ST angle of greater than 20% in precordial leads. In a comparison between 25, 29 transgender males and cisgender females, the prevalence of the male pattern, <coughs> prevalence of early repolarization pattern, J-point elevation, T-wave amplitudes, QRS amplitudes, and P-wave amplitudes were significantly higher in transgender males. The prevalence of male pattern was lower in transgender females than in cisgender males. In the analysis of transgender males for whom ECGs were available before and after gender-affirming hormone treatment, or 13 of them, J-point elevation T-wave amplitude significantly increased after gender-affirming hormone treatment, leading to a higher prevalence of the male pattern. The authors conclude that gender-affirming hormone treatment, or gender dysphoria, is accompanied by a change in ECG phenotype toward affirming gender in which change in androgen level may be involved. The following article is uh, the atrial resting membrane potential confers sodium current sensitivity to propofenone, flaconine, and dronedrol. The sodium channel blocking effects of propofenone, flaconine, and dronedrol were measured in human stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes, HEK293 expressing human NAV1.5, primary murine atrial cardiomyocytes and the murine hearts with reduced PTAX2C. Results show that a more positive atrial resting membrane potential delayed sodium current recovery, slowed channel inactivation, and decreased peak action potential upstroke velocity. All three drugs displayed enhanced sodium channel block at more positive atrial resting membrane potentials. The authors conclude that atrial resting membrane potential modifies the effectiveness of several clinically used antiarrhythmic drugs. Identifying and modifying atrial resting membrane potential may offer a novel approach to enhancing the effectiveness of antiarrhythmic drug or personalizing antiarrhythmic drug selection. The above original articles are followed by two contemporary reviews titled Arrhythmias and Device Therapies in Patients with Cancer Therapy-Induced Cardiomyopathy and the Effect of Evabrading on Cardiac Arrhythmias, Anti-Oproarrhythmic. Dr. Gregory Feld wrote a viewpoint titled Diagnosis and Ablation of Atrial Flutter, the Prototypical Reentrant Atrial Arrhythmia as the seventh entry in our series of articles to celebrate the 30th year of RF ablation. That viewpoint is followed by a special article titled Luminaries, the Women Presidents of HRS. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm the Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Ping Shen Chen.